0: Hi, this is Jim Lebedo. I'm the president and founder of a company called Performance Group. You're listening to the podcast version of a program that originally aired on BizTalk Radio Show. I started BizTalk so you can have access to today's leading experts about growing your company and yourself. BizTalk is produced by Performance Group, which is in the business of helping the leadership of growth-oriented companies realize their potential. We do this by working with their sales force and helping those individuals discover and develop their unique abilities, and then align those abilities with their opportunities. That's why we're known as a sales force development company. I hope you enjoy this podcast. On our program today is Pat Zergarmi. Pat is a founding associate of the Ken Blanchard Companies, where she currently serves as vice president of business development. Pat, welcome to the program. Thank you. Pat, I'm excited to have you on our program because we're going to talk about the current book that you co-authored with the Ken Blanchard Companies, which is Who Killed Change? And so one of the questions I have to ask is, given the environment we're in, given the fact there seems to be nothing but change, if not on a daily basis, at least on a quarterly basis now, what was the triggering event with you that got you to sit down and address this topic of change because I'll tell you right now, it's a very timely book given the environment we're in.
1: We feel it's timely as well. Um, there's huge pressure in every segment of the marketplace um, to be adaptive, to change, to rethink, to re-examine how we're doing things, and um, that runs from you know public policy to you know understanding your market to being more customer-responsive, to being more innovative. And those pressures are creating um, just a huge churn and reaction in organizations. So my life's work has been on this notion of leading people through change. And with my colleagues, Ken Blanchard, John Britt, and Judd Hoekstra, we put together this little book to get people to really think about why is it that there's almost always kind of a knee-jerk reaction and,
0: you know, change dies. You know, it, it's interesting. I, I just came off vacation with my family, meaning my uh, siblings and my parents. I'm blessed to, uh, even though they're up there in age, are still in perfect health. And so we were all able to get together and go on vacation together. And we survived that, So, which was really good. But my, my brother is a city administrator and which means he's involved in politics and of course when you bring a family together you're going to talk about kids religion and and of course politics and i was sharing my views on some of the things we're going through and of course my other sisters were sharing their view my parents of course uh, given their age have a different perspective on that my brother who sat back and listened made a comment that really brought it all together and it was this he said what you're all struggling with, as we talked about what the changes that are going on in the national scene with politics, he said, what you're all struggling with is change. He says, you're all fighting change. And there was this silence (laughs) that came over the conversation. And I thought about that, and it was really a defining moment for me because I thought, wow, he's exactly right. I'm fighting this instead of trying to understand it. Right. So, And then you know, we have the opportunity to have you on the program today. And I thought, well, what a great timing because I went through a personal epiphany in this because I, I consider myself a person who's always open to change and very adaptable and very nimble and able to move through situations. And then there I caught myself in this trap of, of struggling against some issues that maybe I don't agree with, but maybe I'm not trying to, I'm not taking time to understand. So, my question to you is. Gosh, am I the only one, or is this just a normal reaction when we get faced with changes?
1: You know, Jim, I think when people are faced with change, a common reaction they have is, how will this impact me personally? What am I going to have to give up, not gain? Then you think of going on a diet, people think about all the things they're going to have to give up, not eat or drink. And they rarely focus on what is it that I will gain, like better health or a longer lifespan or more compliments or fitting into those clothes that I can't fit into uh, right now. People generally approach change as, what am I going to have to give up? Back um, 20, 30 years ago when I said this was my life's work, I did a project um, for the federal government on why investment in educational improvement in the 60s and 70s didn't reach the rewards they expected. In other words, the pilot programs worked brilliantly, but when they were rolled out, they didn't get the results. They didn't get higher literacy. They didn't get better science scores. They didn't get better math scores. They didn't get higher self-esteem. And so they had us go into school systems and find out why. And what we found out was that people have predictable concerns with change. And concerns are not negative. They're not resistance. They're unanswered questions. And the people leading the change did not acknowledge that those concerns were there. People talked to each other about them, but they were never able to talk to the people leading the change. So those predictable concerns um, that were raised when people were faced with change, those concerns went unsurfaced, unresolved, unanswered. And therefore, people complied initially with the change if they had to, But they didn't cooperate with the change. So I think a big reason to understand why change fails is that people have concerns that are often unaddressed. And what we found is that there were six sort of predictable stages of concern that people had. And I think it's a lot about what your family was was talking about on this vacation.
0: And you mentioned one is, uh, what will they have to give up? You know, I'm going to lose this if we change. And you said there's some common ones out there. Could you share with our audience some of the other common themes that people are going to have when they're faced with a change?
1: Well, I think the first sort of broad bucket of concerns that we came up with when we did this research is information concerns. People want to know what is the change. Don't sell me on it. Just tell me about it. I'm smart. If you share with me the information you have, I'll come to the same conclusion you came to about the need to change. So this is all about creating kind of a compelling um, business case for the change. Why do we need to change? And, you know, traditionally in organizations we hold on to information. Information has historically been power. And so leaders in organizations are often reluctant to share the information, to create a really clear picture about what is and what could be. So people have information concerns. I I don't get why we have to change. I, I think we see that right now kind of people will sort of acknowledge that the healthcare system's a mess, but there is really not good data about what is and what could be. So I think that's the first bucket of concern. Second bucket of concern, and, and singularly, this explained why most changes in school systems and subsequently in organizations that we've worked with have failed, is people have personal concerns. They have concerns that say, how will this change impact me? Will I win or lose? Will I look good? Will I be able to master new skills? Will my friends be impacted? What? Uh, how will I find the time to do this? All of these are personal concerns. And when faced with change, people have personal concerns. Again, it's related to what I said earlier. What am I going to give up, not what i going to gain? And unless leaders of change kind of address personal concerns, change stalls out or people comply, they don't cooperate. And then let me just um, talk quickly about the third stage of concern, because these were sort of predictable and sequential as we did this research, and that's the concerns related to implementation. Often change is announced, um, and it's really not well thought through, um, you know, for the, the, the notion the devil's in the details. Implementation concerns relate to how do we really do this? What if it doesn't go the way it was planned? You know, where do I get help? You know, it's, it's like people, when they're asked to change, want to know who's the person I call if this isn't going the way we thought it was going to go. And so these three stages of concern, information, personal, and implementation concerns, really explain a lot about why change stalls out in organizations.
0: We're talking with Pat Zagarmi and the book we're referring to is Who Killed Change, which just came out, co-authored with... Ken Blanchard and John Britt. And Pat, it's interesting, that as you talk about those three levels, when you hear you talk those three, I can imagine an audience sitting there say, well, okay, that's logical. Uh, gosh, that kind of makes sense. I can kind of understand that. And yet there's this resistance from leaders to share information. And I don't think it's maybe intentional, but did your research show why leaders sometimes don't delve into sharing the information that if the people had it, they could come to the conclusions, like you said, that the leader came to?
1: You know, I mean, historically, as I said before, information has been power. (laughs) So usually it's the people higher up in the organization that have access to information. There's some, I think, question of trust. You know, if the people had the information, what would they do with it? Um, And so I, I think there's this caution about sharing information but in Blanchard we're quite um, fans of you know transparency, of telling people what you know, of describing what is and what could be. Um, I think one of the things that's really important, Jim, to acknowledge here is people don't want to be sold on change. Mm -hmm. to push them too far, they react. You know the whole notion from Kurt Lewin in 1947 was driving versus restraining forces, and if you push too much for change what happens is people automatically react against it. He said that what you have to do is instead co opt people. You have to bring them around to your point of view, and you do that by sharing information.
0: Pat, we've been talking about your book, Who Killed Change? So let me ask you this. Who in an organization really kills change?
1: Well, you know, in this book we talk about, um, I think there's 13 different culprits or suspects. Mm-hmm. And I think all of them play a part. Um, the culture of an organization can sometimes kill change. Um, and there can be extremes. There could be a culture that's oriented towards consensus, and therefore we can't reach consensus about the change, and so it stalls out. Or it could be a culture of command and control, and again, therefore people don't feel that they can influence what's happening to them. Um, sponsorship, um, you know, the the senior leader who has the authority to initiate or launch the change and dedicate resources to it. If sponsorship says, you know, hey, my job is just to announce the change. It's not to mess around with any of the details. With a lack of sponsorship, change can also stall out. Um, Another, you know, suspect in our book is the, the change leadership team. And we've all been in organizations where a group of leaders get together, they make a set of critical decisions about change, and then one breaks rank. You know, they leave the meeting, even though there is an agreement um, about a direction to take, and one says, hey, let's just wait and see what happens here. You know, I don't know if we need to pay attention to this. And the minute there's that lack of alignment, again, that lack of alignment at the leadership team level can cause change to die or, you know, be killed. Um, There are several other characters in the book, and I'm happy to describe how each of them sort of kill change, if that would be helpful.
0: Explain to our audience that, how your book is laid out, because I thought it was, again, fantastically done, as you, in not only this book and other books, and also your partners in the organization have been able to do, write books that are just so well laid out in terms of easy to read, easy to understand which are sometimes complex or challenging issues. And in, in this case, you have a wonderful diagram on, on page six, which shows all the usual suspects, as it were, of what change, in other words, who would kill change. And, you know, at the top of that diagram, you have the sponsorship behind that. And if so if the person doesn't own that process, then they're probably not going to move ahead. So one of the questions I have just centered around that that sponsorship, in your experience, if someone starts change, generally what gets them off track? Why does it just shift away at that sponsorship level?
1: I think change gets uh, derailed for lots of reasons. Um, One is people leading the change think that announcing it's the same as implementing it. So they don't deal with implementation concerns. I think uh, another reason is that there's not enough dialogue about the change. Um, You know, people, again, engage in leadership meeting change engage in one-way communication, not in two-way dialogue. And I always believe that people closest to the problem that that needs to be addressed or closest to the customer who's uh, challenged by the way we do business, people closest to the problem, those are the people who've got the answers about what needs to change and how it needs to change. Um, I think that, uh, you know, another reason uh, why, you know, sponsorship fails to um, kind of provide the support that's needed on an ongoing basis is that they don't include um, early adopters or informal leaders on the change leadership team. And another reason might be that they don't align the systems of the organization you know, with the change. I mean, how many times have I in a business development role seen a company not align the compensation system with the behaviors they want from people, so they say, well, let's do team selling, for example. But you know, the reward system still uh, pays people for individual contributions. So I think sponsorship plays a big piece of this. But as you know, when um, the way the book is laid out, um, when the agent, uh, the Columbo-like character, you know, approaches the company to investigate who killed change. Um, he finds change, you know, dead on the on the boardroom table, uh, apparently um, homicide and uh, probably poisoned to death. And so he begins to round up these suspects, and sponsorship's only one of the 13 uh, characters he rounds up and begins to uh, interrogate.
0: And again, wonderful read, and the great thing about the book, too, is you you walk through this this story where, you know, Agent... McNally is on the case to find out who killed Chains, and it weaves you through that. And when you get done with the book, it's really you go to the back of the book, too, in a more textbook way. It lays it out for you again. So you get both sides of the story. One reinforces the other. The hey, other you get the
1: great narrative, excuse
0: me. Go you on, get go the ahead. great
1: narrative, and you get kind of the, the tips at the back of the book. Whereas if you're actually leading a change, how do you address um, these uh, suspects so that they actually work together, you know, to make the environment uh, sort of change conducive or change adaptable rather than um, kind of stalling out.
0: Talk a little bit about one of the suspects that maybe can kill change in an organization is the planning side of that. And so where does the plan usually fail? Why would that kill change in an organization?
1: Well, plan's an interesting character because, you um, we sort of portray this suspect as, as someone who hasn't put the priority of the particular change um, out on the table. So, you know, everything is urgent in the organization. Everything is a priority. So without a clear sense of what's more important than something else, you know, people, again, don't think they can outlast it. <laughs> you know, they think they can wait it out. Um, the other thing is is that often The plan is thought out at the top with, again, not consulting the people who are going to be impacted by the change or affected by the change. And what we say is that what you want to do is involve a broader group as possible who are closest to the challenge that you're trying to address to really build a detailed and realistic implementation plan and then to align the infrastructure and the systems of the organization in support of the change. It's amazing to us how many changes are initiated in an organization without metrics in place to know if it works or not. So, you know, one of the things we would say is you've got to build out the metrics. you you got to know if this vision of the future you're trying to create actually works. Um, I think I mean, I think right now, just looking at sort of public policy, we're unsure of, you know, whether certain investments are working because we didn't have um, a good way of sort of tracking or measuring progress
0: or compliance. The book, Who Killed Change, our guest, Pat Zagarmi with the Ken Blanchard Companies. And, Pat, the planning, I think, is, is important. And at the same time, some other suspects that are out there that I want you to dive into, because in my experience, I'm bringing up some of the ones that are really kind of the Achilles heels I see that will derail chains. Any one of the 13 or a combination thereof could obviously do it. The other is the incentive, And so sometimes the incentive is pretty obvious, like right now, there may be a huge incentive for whatever reason in your department, in your company to facilitate change because of what's going on with the economy. Other than the reasons why seem to be clear when we launch, how does incentive kill change after it gets started?
1: Well, incentive is two parts. Um, Incentive is recognition for the fact that your behavior is changing. With the change, and you know, it's amazing how little we as leaders spend kind of catching people doing things right, um, focusing on kind of what we want versus what we don't want. So, incentive is both recognizing people as well as rewarding people, and reward falls into that whole notion of like, how are you going to change the system? In this case, the compensation system or the reward system. acknowledge people who make the change you know it ties in really nicely to one of the other characters as well which is accountability you know one of the suspects in our book that kills change is when there's no follow-through you know when the behaviors um that people are expected to do are done and they're not treated or recognized differently let me just do this answer again (laughs) um so incentive Works hand in hand with accountability, and accountability is one of the suspects in our book. And accountability is the follow through. It's holding people's feet to the fire. It's saying we're going to treat you differently if you work with us and implement this change successfully, versus if you just you know are passive aggressive about it, or passive about it, or resistant to it. Um, The lack of accountability in an organization I think is really one of the the biggest culprits of what kills change. It's like leaders go on to the next change initiative and spend very little time kind of ensuring or paying attention to uh, the accountability they want um, from the people that are being asked to change.
0: Another suspect in the book is commitment. So explain commitment's role and and how does it kill change in an organization?
1: Well that's This is at the heart. Commitment's at the heart of um, uh, our change model. Um, At Blanchard, we say the heart of our model is what we call high involvement. And the biggest strategy for leading successful change is to involve people. People want to influence what happens to them. There's a favorite uh, quote I have that people who plan the battle rarely battle the plan. And uh, a corollary to that is people who are left out of planning for change have uh, uh, quite a few ways of reminding us that they're really important. So commitment's at the heart of it. People want to influence what happens to them, and they also have really good ideas uh, about what realistically can be accomplished in terms of change. So commitment is gained, I think, by involving people in the planning process, by involving them in um, exploring options. Uh, by involving them in creating a compelling business reason for why uh, the change needs to happen. So what is it that you want to hold on to here as we change? But what is it that, from your point of view, actually could change and make your life better or easier? We should enlist them in, um, in uh, developing the vision of the future. You know, what is it we're aspiring to be or do? And then we should involve them in experimenting or piloting the change. I think one of the things you'll get by reading Who Killed Change is that many organizations don't do a lot of piloting or experimenting before they roll out change. Um, they don't sort of test drive it. They don't work up the kinks. And I think that that's an important piece um, to figure out with the involvement of people who are kind of inclined to do the change, you know, how does it really work? You know, what... what, what really happening here when we try to implement an SAP system or we try to reorganize a particular part of the company or we try to go to market differently.
0: And in your book, you point out another suspect that I've quite honestly never seen before in this topic, and that's the trainer. So what role does the trainer play in change in an organization and how do they kill it?
1: Well, Remember when I talked about personal Personal concerns are when people say, "Can I really learn to do this? Can you teach the old dog new tricks?" And uh, trainers, the the character in the book, who helps people develop mastery with the new skill sets, the new behaviors, the new attitudes they need to have in order to be able to um, adapt to change. And so, trainers, the the character who says, "Let me structure some learning experiences so that you can." work with this change, so that you can feel as competent with the change as you felt competent with what you had to let go of. You know, we're the company that wrote Situational Leadership, and what we know is that people who feel competent and confident don't like to go back to feeling, you know, awkward and uncomfortable and insecure. And that's what happens in change. People sort of lose that sense of mastery. They they lose their confidence and their skill set. And what we need is a character-like trainer or a coach to provide people with um, the competency-building and the um, confidence-building experiences so that they actually can let go of what they're leaving behind and adapt to the the change behaviors.
0: Pat, it's been my experience that recently everything is open to examination in a business right now. So I imagine people in our audience... Or thinking about the changes they have in their departments or in their, or in their organization and how they go through that. One of the questions I have is people think about implementing change, let's say they're in the planning stage and putting it together. Based on your experience, how long does it typically take to affect change in an organization?
1: A lot longer than you think it's going to take. That would probably be my answer. Um, <laughs> we tend to underestimate how long it takes, you know, to lead change. I mean. When you look at the stats on the number of change efforts that fail, I mean, Harvard says that as much as 70% of the changes initiated in organizations and businesses fail. And, uh, you know, there's some predictable reasons why that happens, but one of them is they underestimate the amount of communication it's going to take, the amount of piloting and experimenting and test driving it's going to take, the amount of looking at the kinks it's going to take. the amount of thinking through things like accountability and metrics and infrastructure that supports the change. So um, it takes a lot longer than I think we think it's going to take.
0: In your experience, again, as you've worked with companies, what's the downside you see happen in organization when we rally the troops, announce this big change we're going to make, and Sell people on the idea of why it's going to be so much better for them, and go marching off and then it it just fails. <laughs> <laughs> you know what's the impact you have seen in an organization?
1: Well, I think one thing is people think they can outlast it, you know, so this tool will pass, <laughs> and uh, so you get kind of a passive reaction to change you know get an apathetic reaction to change, and you may get some outright outright resistance um, you know to it that. You know, I've, I've always found it's easier to work with people who are kind of neutral or or positive than it is to work with people who are neutral and negative, or neutral to negative. And, you know, it, it's funny um, because when there's a history of unsuccessful change in an organization, you have more people in that neutral to negative camp than you have in the neutral to, you know, maybe I'll give this a shot kind of camp. And so every time you kind of misstep and a change fails or derails, you know, you build up this kind of cynicism that, um, you know, I, I can just outlast this thing, you know, they'll change their mind, you know, the context will change. I really won't have to adapt.
0: Pat, you've been studying change for some time. You've mentioned you've kind of made that a lifelong mission of yours. So let me ask you this, what's changed about change?
1: Uh, we, we used to think that we could plan for it. <laughs> I mean, when I wrote my doctoral dissertation, it was based on Kurt Lewin's model, and it was we need to unfreeze an organization, uh, we need to change it, and then we need to refreeze it. And the reality is there is no refreezing. I mean, we live in much more a condition of permanent white water. Um, and what do we know about white water? It's turbulent. It's externally controlled. There's, it's very hard to find the eddies. You know, you sometimes have to go backwards or upside down in order to go forward. Um, You know, it's scary and it's thrilling at the same time. I think it's a much better metaphor to say um, we have to manage change in this condition of permanent white water rather than in a kind of linear, thoughtful, rational process. I think if I were to distinguish Blanchard's approach to leading people through change, it would be to say... um, You want to use a high-involvement strategy at each phase of the change process, and each phase of the change process will not be very predictable. You know, it's not a top-down, highly controlled, very predictable process. I think that's the biggest thing that's changed.
0: Well, then that begs the question then for our leaders out there who are listening in what's the one thing they can do or the three or four things they can do to improve how fast and flexible and nimble they have to be with their organizations today?
1: Okay, good question. Um, one is spend time looking for the people who are on your side. Um, you know, Casey Stengel, the, the great baseball coach, said, um, you know, I've always found it pretty hard to keep the people who hate me away from the people who haven't made up their mind yet, you know, and I love that notion because it's, it's, we need to focus on the people who haven't made up their mind yet, And, um, and we need also to focus on the people who are kind of advocates for the change, you know, whenever a change is proposed, there are some people who are interested in it, willing to experiment with it, open to it. I would try to find the advocates in the organization for what you're proposing, and really pull them in to the planning process, highly involve them in planning for and thinking through uh, the change. So I'd work with advocates, and I'd increase the frequency with which people who are positive talk to people who are on the fence or who are negative. That would be one thing I would do. Second thing I would do is I'd go towards the concern. You know, people have predictable concerns uh, with change when it's introduced, Um, information, personal implementation concerns. And I would go toward them. I would, uh, they're there. I mean, they're talking to their friends about them. They're, you know, talking over Twitter about them. They're, you know, networking about them. They're just not talking to you, the people who are leading the change. So I would go toward it. I would set a a ground rule that whenever you introduce change, you can only talk in a meeting for, you know, half the time. And the rest of the time has to be spent listening, gathering information, finding out what people's concerns are, and then going back to a small group of people and systematically addressing those concerns. I think you can diffuse a lot of the resistance to change by really taking the concerns as questions and using it as an opportunity to educate.
0: If you're wondering whether or not your organization is ready for change, you can take a mini-assessment by going out to www.org whokilledchange.com. Pat, is there one question that I should have asked you today that I haven't asked you about, who killed change?
1: Um, you know, in this book, it's kind of like the old clue game we used to play as kids. You know, it's Colonel Mustard with the candlestick in the library. Um, and what we know is that in this book, there are a number of suspects. 13 of them who killed change. But The question is, is, how do they do it? And I think another useful sort of um, concept in who killed change is the C-15, the poisoning uh, that causes change to die on the boardroom table. And uh, I guess I would point your listeners to the C-15, the 15 reasons we found why change typically fails. And if we can, in effect, um, really think how we're not going to use that poison to kill change in our organization will also have a higher probability
0: of success. The book is Who Killed Change? Our guest has been Pat Zagarmi, And Pat, if people want more information, obviously they can get the book by their local bookstore or go out to Amazon or in the online locations and find that. But if they want more information on Ken Blanchard companies, uh, where would they go?
1: They go to www.kenblanchard.com. And they'd asked to speak to us about not only who killed change, but our kind of flagship program, Leading People Through Change, which is a program that equips leaders to um, help people um, become much more adaptive and resilient uh, in leading change in the organization.
0: Pat, thanks for being on the program.
1: Great. Thanks for having me, Jim.
0: This or other BizTalk podcast may be downloaded by visiting our website at www.biztalkradioshow.com or you can subscribe to BizTalk through iTunes. If you want to learn the strategies how to take your sales force to the next level, you can contact the performance group at 800-550-9509 or visit us on the web at www.pmglc.net.